brings us to heaven. And so there are these specific signs throughout the book of John that are designed to show us who Jesus is, to open our eyes, and if you will, convince us of who Jesus is, indeed, that he is the Messiah. So we are going to start on the first sign, uh, which is at the wedding uh, in Cana. But I really encourage you to bring someone out for this series. We've been hovering right at around 70 people at the service for a while. And we've said we want to come together. We want to be a full-fledged church. And uh, we have 35 members. We need to get to 50 members. And that means probably around 110 people. Um, and so I want you to catch the vision. Invite folks out to the Signs Sermon Series. And uh, let's grow as a church. Now let's look at the scripture, which can be found on the inside of your bulletin. This is John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Well, spring is here, and spring is wedding time. I don't know if you, uh, you know, have been married or whatever, but spring is the number one time when people get married. And when you think of it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, there's new life, it's becoming beautiful, all those sort of things. Marriage is about new life. And uh, so that's the time to get married. And, you know, being a pastor, that's one of the benefits of my job is to participate in some of these marriages. And let me tell you, some of them can be very, very auspicious affairs. It costs a lot of money to get married in this country as some of you may very well know. And so the million-dollar question, no pun intended, is how much is enough? And so I did a little research, and I uh, was looking at the 12 most expensive weddings in history. And I wanted to share with you a little bit. If you're thinking of having a wedding and, and want to really get a sense of this is the way to do it, here we go. Number six most expensive wedding in history, Liza Minnelli and David Guest. The bill was $4.2 million. The bride, a Broadway star, the groom was a music producer. The wedding featured best man Michael Jackson and maid of honor Elizabeth Taylor. Entertainment included a 60-piece orchestra, Tony Bennett, Stevie Wonder, and Natalie Cole. The couple spent an estimated $700,000 on flowers and $40,000 on the cake. How can you spend $40,000 on a cake? Are you kidding me? All right, there's number six, by the way. That means there's five more expensive. Okay, Prince William and Kate Middleton. Remember, they sought to have a very subdued affair in light of world events. A $34 million. The bride, a 
29-year-old commoner, uh, commoner who has become a worldwide celebrity. The groom, well, we all know him. The wedding will feature $800,000 in flowers, an $80,000 wedding cake. What's up with the cake? It's the cake. Countless royals and nobles and a global TV audience in the hundreds of millions. I think we had the hundreds of millions at our wedding as well. It was quite an affair. Number two, Vanisha Mittal and Amit Bhatia. The bill was $66 million. The bride, the beautiful daughter of billionaire Steve Magnet, Lakshmi Mittal, and the groom was a banker. The wedding featured invitations mailed in silver boxes, including plane tickets and rooms at a five-star Paris hotel. Five-day festivities at a 16th-century chateau and Versailles and a temporary wooden castle. It's a good idea, right? A temporary wooden castle. Hey, we'll meet you at the temporary wooden castle. Performances by, I don't know who that is, Complerary Mouton Rothschild and designer gift bags filled with jewels. Isn't that delightful? I can't imagine why I wasn't invited. And count number one, the marriage of Prince Charles and Lady Diana, adjusted for inflation, $110 million. The bride, of course, the stunning blonde preschool teacher, the groom, the oldest son of Queen Elizabeth. The wedding was at St. Paul's Cathedral, attended by dozens of royals, two million spectators, and a global audience of 750 million. Diana wore a puffball meringue wedding dress. Sound very expensive if you want meringue. Uh, and a 25-foot train of ivory taffeta and antique lace, 27 wedding cakes, and a 5-foot-tall main cake that took 14 weeks to put together. They even had a duplicate cake just in case something went wrong. So now you know the bar, ladies and gentlemen. I suggest that if you want to be the number one wedding, you better bring crazy money because it's going to cost a lot. You know, I don't know about you, but weddings are a special time. Money or not. I remember my wedding, or at least some of my wedding. You know, I, I can't imagine if it, it was a sheer joy or shell shock. I don't know. Because I don't think anybody remembers their wedding. But my wedding, you know, it's so much emotion, so much excitement. And here we are, a story in the Bible about a wedding. And indeed, Jesus performs the first of his signs at this wedding. Now here's how you know the Bible is true. Okay, Jesus reveals himself through the first sign, which is fixing a problem of social embarrassment at a wedding. Okay, that's not the way to do it. Okay, the way to do it is like a ship of people are going down, you know, and you lift the ship and you save everyone, not you save a party. And yet Jesus is revealing himself in this wedding. He's trying to communicate a story. See, there's actually two stories in this passage. The story of a couple at Cana, and a story of Christ's love for his people. In this story, we see a very nice and wonderful wedding, but we also see the most expensive wedding that has ever been happened, that ever has happened and ever will happen. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who marries his bride. And in the story, people are invited to this wedding, but if we look at the story in the right way, we'll discover that this wedding is actually our own. And so we must look at the story. We must see it for what it is. And we must respond to it. Because in this story, Jesus is giving each of us a wedding invitation. And how we respond to Jesus' wedding invitation determines what kind of feast we will have. 
either a feast of joy or a meal of sorrow. Jesus occupies three different positions in this feast. Number one, he's the master of the feast. He's the one that makes the feast come off. Number two, he's the means of the feast. Without Jesus, no feast at all to be a master of. He's the means of making the feast come together. And then finally, Jesus is the motive of the feast. He's a reason, he's the reason there's a feast in the first place. So let's look at these three different uh, topics here relating to Jesus, uh, whose wedding invitation comes to us today. Number one, he's the master of the feast. Now, in a marriage in Jewish ancient culture was a really big deal, and it had its traditions, just like everybody had, you know, we have our traditions and so forth. And the way it would basically work was this. A guy would see a gal. You know, that's kind of, we all got that. There was a guy and a gal. And the guy wants to marry the gal, okay? And so he goes to the dad. And they start negotiating, okay? So if you really like this gal, three, maybe five oxen, okay? If the dad works, you know, really wanted eight oxen, maybe? I don't know. Expensive, okay? You gotta pay for the bride. Well, the bride still gets a chance to actually participate. And so the contract is signed and written, and the bridegroom takes a cup, and he fills it with wine, okay? And he sips from the cup. This is actually called the kiddushi, the cup of holiness, or the cup of set-apartness. And he would give it to the bride, and if she drank from it, it would be an indication of her acceptance, and they would be betrothed, actually married to one another, though they would not consummate that marriage until about a year later. She would be set apart. She would wear a veil when she would go out in public so everyone would know that she was set apart. And the husband would leave to prepare a place for her. In his father's house, he would build a bridal suite, a honeymoon suite. It would take all year because they were actually going to celebrate their honeymoon there. There was no trip to Cancun. There was no other place. They would be there. They would go into this bridal suite and they would stay there for seven days. They would have meals brought to them, they would stay there. I wonder what happened by the end of the seventh day, you know? Are they still tight? I don't know. But while the thing started, as soon as they go into the chamber, the feast begins. The whole town comes out because a wedding is a big deal. It's the time for partying, it's the time for celebrating, and it's the time for wine. And so for seven days, they'd celebrate this wedding. And at the very end, the bride and the groom would emerge and would celebrate the last and greatest day of the feast together. So this story is about that wedding. And in fact, it's about the last day of the wedding because the groom is actually there, if you'll notice. And so what's going on here? This is a big deal. And because it's a big deal, there's lots of wine there. Okay, wine in ancient times, as it does now, represents prosperity represents joy, laughter, and life. They, we know in the Old Testament that Jesus likened, excuse me, God the Father likened prosperity to wine. Remember they go to Canaan to search out the land and what do they bring back? Grapes, as big, a big bush. Why? Because it symbolizes life. And prosperity means that there would be plenty of grain and oil and wine would abound. And so they're celebrating with wine. Now there's also a very important person at the feast, and he was called the master of the feast. OK, 
okay, commander and master of the feast. He was uh, very similar to uh, like a master of ceremonies or a toastmaster, a sort of Eric Zemer, if you will. I don't know if you know Eric Zemer, but he's the life of the party. He loves a party. And so he's the master of the feast. And the master of the feast's job is to keep this thing running, telling stories, encouraging people to celebrate, constantly toasting the bridegroom for all that he has done. Very important position. And so the master of the feast has been working the crowd they've been enjoying, and a problem occurs. They're running out of wine. They're getting to the end of the feast, and they're running out of wine. Things are looking like they're on a collision path. I wonder if there's murmuring starting to come from the crowd as the portions get smaller and smaller. See, the consequences of this would be horrible. Here it is, you know, if, if the bridegroom isn't able to provide wine for his guests, how is he going to be able to provide wine for his bride? Life and joy and happiness. And the crowd would go away disenfranchised, and a stain would occur on their marriage rather than a blessing from the people. And so there has to be some sort of solution. Now the bridegroom is there, I'm sure, and beginning to sweat bullets because he knows the consequences. But there's no more wine. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, somehow knowing, I don't know how, but turns to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Now, why would Mary do that? Because Mary knew Jesus. She knew his power. She knew his love and the way he'd grown up having compassion for people. She knew he could do something about it. And so she turns to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Do something, okay? No more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you, you know, in the Greek, it's literally woman, what to you and to me? What do you want me to do? My hour has not yet come. And yet Jesus, and Mary says to the servants, do what he says. So I get the picture. Jesus is here, and Mary says they have no more wine. She's already talked with the servants. Okay, so they're like five guys standing around Jesus, waiting instructions. Pretty tough to say no to that, right? But Jesus certainly was not uh, uh, dealt with peer pressure. He could stand his own ground. But what does Jesus say? He says, take these stone jars, okay, about 150 gallons between all of them. And these were these huge stone, uh, and they were used for ceremonial washing. So either in the temple, how you would cleanse yourself before you went in, uh, you needed to be clean, even washing your feet and being clean before going into the wedding feast. Basically, foot water in this instance. And they were empty, they'd been used up. And so Jesus says, go to the servants and fill this up with water. The servants, okay, we're just the servants, you know. They go ahead and they do that. They fill up the jars and they carry them back to Jesus. Well, what do you want me to do? Take out some and give it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast gets some of the wine. He has no idea where it's come from. Now, surely he's the master of the feast. He would know the stores of wine. But he has no idea where it's come from. So what does he do? He calls over the bridegroom. And he says to them, everybody serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The NIV says that he pulls the bridegroom aside. But there's nowhere in the Greek that actually says that. He calls out to the bridegroom. Okay? Now the master of ceremonies is in charge of the fun, isn't he? So what does he do? He shouts out to the crowd. Can you believe this guy? He saves the best for last. 
man. Oh yeah, that's my man. He's the one who picked me. How's the crowd feeling? Hooray! More wine! Yes! Let's keep it going. The party continues. Jesus is the true master of the feast. It was going to be a disaster. Now it's a delight. You know, I don't know what impressions you have of Jesus. I had a host of mine when I was growing up, but I think the first one is an absent Jesus. There's no way Jesus would be at a party like this. Hey, there's drinking and carousing and fun. I mean, this is, this is, Jesus is like the serious dude, okay? He's out somewhere praying on a rock. But no, Jesus is there, a part of this feast, participating in it, helping it. You know, in fact, Jesus was, the Pharisees used to uh, uh, insult Jesus and say, look, this guy's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, because he was always at a party with the worst type of people often. So no, Jesus was not absent. Maybe you have a vision of Jesus as a stern Jesus. Serves them right. They had too much wine. Now, now they'll see deprivation. He's a stern Jesus. He's wearing all black. He kind of has this frown on his face. But Jesus in this story is not stern at all, is he? How about a weak Jesus? They had no more wine. What do you want me to do about it? I can't do anything. That's not Jesus at all. What's he saying? My time has not yet come. Not, I can't take care of this problem. Because he surely could. See, what I love about the story is it gives us a picture of who Jesus is. He's the true master of the feast. Not just the feast of this wedding in Cana, but he's come to be the master of the feast of life. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. I've come to set the captives free. I've come to take people who are in darkness and bring them into light to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This whole picture of the wedding is the story of a God who takes water and turns it into wine. Who takes emptiness and brings fullness. Who takes sorrow and brings joy. He's the master of the feast. And all of this picture is being given and how he cares for these people is the same way he desires to care for us. In this time and the time to come. You know, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a feast, isn't it? On this mountain, as the prophecy in Isaiah about heaven, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shaft shrouded and throat folds all the people, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. See, there's not a banquet in heaven. Heaven is the banquet. It's a continuing banquet, a continuing feast of love and joy in the presence of the master of the feast. So my question for you is, how do you see Jesus? Is he weak? Is he not interested in life? Or is he the master of your feast? See, all of us in one way, shape, or another have run out of wine, don't we? I've got no more wine. All I'm left with is muddy foot water. Can you do something about my problem? 
Jesus has the ability to take the most empty of lives and bring fullness and joy to them. You know what all church is? The fellowship of believers? It's a party. It's a party of people who come together spiritually in place of the master of the feast. And can celebrate because we can enjoy fellowship and we can enjoy what is to come. Because heaven is a feast. And so if we are to experience this feast and this master of the feast, we must be like Mary. We must not settle. We have no more wine. I have no more wine. Do whatever he says. And we must give Jesus the jars of our hearts, full or empty. Fill these up. Take my dirty foot water and fill it with wine. Take my life. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you are. It matters what you want. And then finally we must taste and see. We must draw out the water and sip it and celebrate it because the Master has saved the best to last. Our first understanding of truly enjoying the feast is to look to the Master of the feast because he has the ability and desire to take your ordinary life and make it extraordinary. He's the Master of the feast. Well, that brings me to my second point. He's not only the master of the feast, he's the means of the feast. It's clear that Jesus is operating on a different wavelength, isn't he? That Jesus is thinking about something more than simply this wedding. This response, they have no more wine, son. Woman, why do you bring me into this? I don't often call my mother woman, okay? Granted, she is a woman, but I don't call her. I call her mom. In fact, there's no other place in ancient Greek uh, literature where you can find someone calling their mom woman. Woman, why do, you, uh, why do you come to me? What does this have to do? My hour has not yet come. Now, I always thought this hour has not yet come dealt with the fact where he was ready to begin his public ministry. But it actually doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Jesus is not saying, why are you, you know, revealing me? It's not time yet. The term, the hour, appears repeatedly in the book of John. And when it's always talking about the hour, it's talking about the hour of his death. The hour of his crucifixion. Listen to John 12, 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So when Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about his death. He's not perform talking about performing this miracle. See, think of weddings. If you've ever been married, or maybe you hope to be married, you know, you go to a wedding, you're enjoying it, but you invariably think back to your wedding. Or maybe you think of your impending wedding. Because Jesus is single, he must be thinking of his impending wedding. And what is that wedding? It's the uniting of himself with his people. It was even John the Baptist who heralded the coming of Jesus, who said the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend, meaning me, who attends the bridegroom, Jesus, waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. Jesus is the bridegroom, and his people are the bride. And so there is a cup that Jesus brings, a covenant in his blood. And he drinks it, and he wants to give it to his bride. But this cup has two sides of it, you see. Because Jesus doesn't drink the cup of joy. 
He doesn't drink the cup of happiness or joy. He drinks the cup of wrath. Throughout the Old Testament, the symbol of the cup is a symbol of death and judgment against the enemies of God. And the cup that they will have to drink because of their um, re re rebelling against God. Here's Psalm 75, 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. Full of foaming wine, he pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. And when Jesus is sitting there at the Last Supper, he's saying, take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant cup shed in my blood. It's the Kiddush of what Jesus is talking about. Remember in Gethsemane, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to experience your wrath. I don't want to die. But I want to free my people. And it is for this very hour that I have come. Here comes my betrayer. And so there at this feast, as the wine comes out, and the people are dancing and celebrating and having joy, there is Jesus in a corner sipping the cup of sorrow so we could sip the cup of joy. Thinking about his future wedding. His mother can't understand. The guests can't understand. But the very wine that is coming out to these people is his blood that he will shed on the cross. This is what Jesus is thinking about in this wedding. His hour that is coming. And so this gift of the cup that because Jesus has drank the cup of wrath, when he gives it to us, it's the cup of salvation. But we still must drink it. We still must make a decision to come to the feast. The most expensive feast in the history of mankind. Bought with the blood of God himself. But it's interesting, one would think it's very easy. Everyone would come, want to come to that feast. Are you kidding me? But they don't. Jesus said, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for now everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. See, at the end of the day, folks, we have to choose what feast to go to. The woman had a choice to drink the cup or not. In America, it's like we have five cups, ten cups. Which feast will we drink? What will we connect ourselves? Where will we, who will we bind ourselves to? Christ has given the feast. It's laid out. He's the means of the feast. He's the master of the feast. But we must decide which feast we will go to and for which cup we will drink. The cost is simply this, your heart. What will you be mine? Will you be mine? We must surrender our dreams to this one, the one who we will live with. We must drink the cup of salvation and his death 
so that we might be Kiddush, set apart, a holy people. What do you have to give up to take this cup? Because we all have a cup, by the way. We all hold on to something. And Jesus says, I love you, but I betroth you to myself only. I'm a jealous God. What cup do we have to let go of to pick up this cup? Is whatever wedding you're going to the most expensive, lavish feast for you? Or is it something that's really killing you? Not giving life, but rather telling you. When he comes to your door, how will you answer when the cup is presented? Receive his invitation. Respond to it. Come to the feast. Because how we respond to Jesus' invitation determines what kind of feast we will have. A feast of joy or a meal of sorrow. This brings me to my last point, the motive for the feast. You know, I remember when it was time for me uh, to get married to my lovely wife, Leon. You know, people ask the question, well, how, you, how will you know when she's the one? And you always get that tried answer, you'll just know. That's true, you'll just know. And so it's time, though, yeah, there's one thing between just know and there's another thing about getting ready. Okay, so it's time to save up for the ring. Because I want to present to her something that shows I'm serious. Something, you know, that's sacrifice, something of my time, because I want to communicate my love. And then I gotta go talk to some people, right? I gotta go talk to mom and dad, you know, gotta kinda put on some sort of show or something and try to squeak by with that. I need to go to ask her to present the cup. And if she says yes, I need to come again to take her to the altar for her to be wedded to me. You know, it's interesting, the Jews, when, when the, the bridegroom would come, he would come at night with all of his friends. And by the way, he wouldn't know when to come. He would be building this house, and at a certain time when it was ready, the father would tell him he could go. And so when they asked him, when are you going to go get the bride? He would say, I don't know. Only my father knows. And at that time, he would go, and he would literally abduct the bride. In this lavish ceremony, the father and the brothers would be turning the other way as if they were sitting, and he would come, and he would take the bride and carry her away to be abducted. See, this is, this is Jesus, the bridegroom. He comes to abduct his people. See, the woman would have to be ready because she never knew what time he was going to come. Her oil lamp would be full. Her trousseau would be ready because it would be time to go to the chamber. So the men has excitement and anticipation. And they would come at night with the friends and they would enter the chamber. They would consummate the marriage. And that image and symbol of the sheep would be given to the man to show this marriage has been consummated. Because the marriage was ratified in wine and it was sealed with blood. A beautiful picture. So when we look at all of this, Jesus is the master of the feast, he's the means of the feast, what's the motive for the feast? The motive is simply love. Jesus loves us. How will you know when it's right? You just do. And so Jesus sees us, these unlovely people, and he looks at us and he loves us still, and he wants us. Think about what lengths 
God has gone in the person of Jesus Christ to ransom us to Himself. He chooses us. He finds us. He pays for us. He prepares a place for us. He takes us to be with Him where He is, and He has a feast in our honor. See, a lot of us think that the wedding feast, we just want to be a guest there. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, you're the person of honor. You're the one who's at the head of the table. In fact, I've done this whole thing just to celebrate you. He doesn't want us to be a guest. He wants us to be the bride. And so this wedding in Cana, the story of Jesus that saves a wedding from disaster, is a picture of Jesus' heart. It's a sign of His intentions. And it's a sign of His victory. For He will not be denied His bride. No matter what it takes, even if he has to hang on a cross and come out of the grave. No wonder John 2.11 says, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Jesus comes to everyone in this room who has a heart for him and says, I want you to be mine. He wants you for a soulmate, for a relationship of deep intimacy, where He will honor you in the sight of everyone. But you say, I'm not worthy. You're exactly right. You're not worthy and I'm not either. It's not about the bride. It's about the bridegroom. The thing about Jewish marriage, it's not about the bride. There's no bride magazine. It's bridegroom magazine. I couldn't find a bridegroom magazine. Okay? I'm still a little bit hurting about that. Sorry. What if I'm not worthy? You know, as a minister, when the couple comes up to the front, it's a made sign to see the bride coming. You know, and as she lifts the veil, and her face is glowing. And you know why it's glowing? Because she's loved. And because it's all of this for me. That is the message that Jesus has given. Do you know his love? Drink the cup of joy. Do you know that he's coming for you? Be waiting for him. Do you know that he wants to glorify you? Glorify him and accept no less than the true spouse, the one who gave everything that you might be him. Until he comes, live in joy. I'm loved. Live in expectation. He's coming. And live in preparation. My life is preparation for the one who's coming to take me away. Because he doesn't just want you to be a guest. He wants you to be his bride. How we respond to Jesus' wedding invitation determines what kind of feast we will have. Either a feast of joy or a meal of sorrow. The choice is ours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wedding, this beautiful picture. As as we unfold it, Lord, we understand what you're doing. You're paying in blood the price for your bride. Lord, we don't even understand that. We can't comprehend that. Open our eyes and our hearts and our souls that we may understand the love that you have for us that surpasses all knowledge. Lord, help us to throw away the cup of the cheap stuff 
and help us to take hold of the choicest wine, the wine that you've saved for us. Forgiveness and salvation and glory and love. And let us live with joy and be glad all our days in preparation for the one who is coming to take us to the feast of heaven. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.